Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Compliance Guy and our Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. Joining me on this week's uh, roundtable panel are some of my favorite people. So good morning to Christine Hall, Terry Fletcher, Stephanie Howard, and Paul Spencer. Now, Paul, I'm not naming you last because you're my least favorite. You're just one of the guys. So well, I'm, I have last, to... I'm last in alphabetical order, so I'll take that. Okay. You're last in alphabetical <laughs> order. But nonetheless, you're still number one on my list, buddy. All right. So, hey, to everybody out there joining us, thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special group of friends for a little while. Uh, I hope you all had a, a fantastic weekend. I hope you uh, didn't find yourselves doing too much work, although I know Paul and Terry, you guys uh, work seven days a week. Christine, I'm, I'm pretty sure you were at it too, and Stephanie, but how was, how was each of your weekends real quick? Busy. Busy. Full of audits. <laughs> I'll, I'll second that. Yeah. Well, it's actually, better than being full of something else. But okay. Actually, it was report writing for me. So, uh, it was. Yeah, I was catching up from being gone. So it's a fun weekend. All right. Well, to everybody uh, hanging out with us out there on LinkedIn Live, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Stitcher, and all the other platforms, welcome. Good morning. Happy Monday to you. We have a jam-packed agenda today, so we're just going to go ahead and get right after it. As always, um, please feel free to uh, post any questions, comments, or concerns uh, that you may have. If you're running into any uh, coding conundrums, any compliance issues, uh, this is a great opportunity to share those with the panel, and let's see if we can't try to um, work through some solutions for you while we're all together. But with with that said, let's go ahead and start with um, the first of our topics today, which is really talking about laboratory services. And I want to, Paul, first kick it over to you. Um, since you were my last introduction, you'll be my first topic. Um, I want to talk about the issues between ordering physicians and the laboratories, because there's a lot going on right now. We are seeing a lot of laboratories that are being audited and their services are being denied by payers because the payers are indicating that they're not substantiating the medical necessity. And we'll get into more of the regulatory and, and legal part of that, but I want to talk about the nuts and bolts of what, what you're seeing because you're doing a lot of these audits. And then um, Terry, Stephanie, Christine, will will kind of chime in with y'all. Well, um, First, I'd like to invite everyone to journey with me back to the grunge-stained hallways of yesteryear in the mid-1990s, where I was working for a major clinical lab that had just received a nine-figure fine for billing irregularities that were basically their fault. But when I was employed there, uh, I helped write the compliance plan for this laboratory that went through the steps that the laboratory had to take in order to uh, try to obtain a covered diagnosis or some type of modified order from the ordering physician in order to get a laboratory service covered. Now, we know in the last few years that there have been a number of different LCDs in multiple regions of the country that have opened up very specific coverage criteria for laboratory services. Now, we're not talking about a lot of money when we're talking about things like a urinalysis or a CBC 
or, you know, or, you know, probably the top 10 or 15 laboratory services. But when we're getting into more complex laboratory services, what we're seeing is that the order coming over from the physician only has something very general to apply to the reason for that order. Uh, so, you know, I, the work that I've been doing for laboratories points me to the direction of sitting here wanting to yell a little bit at the ordering providers to uh, make them understand that even though they are not the ones that are going to be billing for that laboratory service, they really need to have some reason and some justification behind ordering that laboratory service. And they really need to familiarize themselves with local coverage determinations, with commercial insurance coverage uh, guidelines. Uh, we know from the audits that we've been doing together, Sean, for the last three or four years, the biggest uh, target on the list right now is urine drug screens. Uh, across the board, no matter what the carrier, and that continues to be a, a problematic issue especially in a country that is struggling for the last 15 years with an opioid epidemic that has take that is taking lives every day in the state of Wisconsin the latest numbers that we had in 2020 in the year 2020 was over 1200 uh, overdoses uh, leading to death in the in this state alone and then you extrapolate that to bigger and larger states across 50 across the territories you're dealing with a large problem. Uh, so that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a pattern where it's not the fault of the lab. The lab is just being asked to perform an ancillary service. It's the fault of the ordering physician not understanding that there are definitive coverage guidelines behind an overwhelming majority of laboratory tests, particularly those of high complexity. So Christine, what... Give me some of your thoughts on diagnosis problems that, you know, you're running into from an auditor's perspective. <laughs> I see the surprise diagnosis. I see that uh, providers are often using a diagnosis that gets it paid versus the reason that they're ordering that lab. Um, and sometimes the reason, the true reason is right there in documentation that the patient presents with the following issues that would justify ordering that lab, but they've become so comfortable with get it paid um, and maybe even get it paid 15, 20 years ago criteria, not even up to date on what the current guidance is. And I'll be honest, Quest has been amazing with providing a lot of lists of medically necessary diagnosis that I don't feel that providers always take advantage of or look at because it's right there in the documentation. And then suddenly there's this diagnosis of diabetes, but all of their hemoglobin A1Cs have come in fine. All of their glucoses have been fine. We're not treating it. There's never been a mention of it. And suddenly there's a diagnosis there. But yeah. the explanation I get is that's how we get it paid. Um, mind-blowing. And it's not just one. This is something that I have seen over the course of my many years. Um, and I, it's, it's a struggle. It just, it truly is a struggle. Stephanie, before I jump at this from a regulatory compliance uh, perspective and from a legal perspective, anything that you're seeing on physicians lab orders, yeah, so I have something else, but really quick to piggyback off of Christine. Uh, one thing I think that the offices forget is that when payers are now asking for documentation, they're not only asking for a lab order and results, they want to see the office visits that go along with it. So just because you got something onto your order doesn't mean that it's going to be supported when it comes time for that external audit. That's, that's a great point. Okay. So let me let me kind of talk about this from a regulatory perspective, okay? So there is case law now, and this is extremely important because this was handled at the um, circuit, Second Circuit Court of Appeals out of Washington, D.C. 
And the case that is setting the precedent for us now on making arguments when insurance companies are refusing to pay laboratory services, either because they were unsuccessful with getting the documentation from the physician office who ordered it, or they're claiming that the laboratory has failed to establish the medical necessity. Now, what's really important in this case is to understand that the justice who originally opined on this overstated what he believed to be HHS's compliance program guidance for clinical laboratories, as well as what he believed to be the stated guidance by the Office of Inspector General. And this was a huge it, this was a huge admission on the part of the judge, and I give uh, him or her incredible credit for doing so. And Susan Cruz, to your point, you're right. It's all about medical necessity. But let's let's look at this for a minute, okay? So the judge said that in its conclusion, um, that the court's prior medical necessity conclusions conflicts directly with the longstanding position of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services. And here's what it says. Laboratories do not and cannot treat patients or make medical necessity determinations. Okay. And this is quoting publication of OIG compliance program guidance for clinical laboratories. And this is found at 63 Federal Register 45076 45079 from August 24th of 1998. Now, what happened here in this case, it's Grope v. Boston Heart Diagnostics. The relator argued in response that OIG guidance firmly establishes that a laboratory's duty to only submit claims for medically necessary testing directly aligns with the CMS Form 1500. Well, the court came back and said, although they agree with the relator, that the laboratory has a quote-unquote legal duty to ensure that it is not submitting false or incorrect claims to the government, payers under OIG guidance, it concludes for the reasons set forth below that a laboratory cannot and is not required to determine medical necessity, but rather is permitted to rely on the ordering physician's determination that the laboratory tests billed to Medicare are medically necessary. Folks, that is such a huge precedent that has been established because what it does for laboratories is it gives them the ability to push back onto the physicians to say and back on the insurance companies to say it is upon the physician to establish the medical necessity of the services that they are ordering on the requisition form. It is our duty to ensure that we are submitting clean claims, right? And that those diagnoses are claims that are medically necessary, but it is not our job to determine that those medically necessary diagnoses submitted by the physician tie directly to the documentation. This is huge. Terry, go ahead, please. Well, I don't do lab services, but just in hearing what you're saying, isn't there a isn't there a gray area there where submitting something that's medically necessary versus submitting something that somebody else said was medically necessary and isn't? I mean, does this hold the lab harmless or, and they're basically just data entry people or, I mean, this is where I think there's a gray area where they're like, it's on the doctor, it's not on us. And then all of a sudden the doctor does what Christine and Stephanie were saying and doesn't support it. So where's like that round loophole? Robin? It, yeah, it, it, it is. Keeping, you, it's, it, this is insanity because we keep going round and round. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, the only people that lose at the end of the day, even if there is case law and there's precedent there, are the labs that have to go through this jumping of hoops to to prove this. So they get denied med not medically necessary. They're pulling records. The records don't support. Then we go back to this case law. But at the end of the day, all of the proof, all of the burden, there's a better word, the burden is on the lab. So where's the advantage? Mm -hmm. That's so what I was great. To. So, so, so both of you raise outstanding points. And I want to relay that. I want to relate this to a current case um, that Paul Spencer and I have with a laboratory. Um, and this one is absolutely bizarre because they did, they, they went through a targeted probe and educate. 
And the auditor from TPE, basically, even though the laboratory director and owners were reading verbatim back to the auditors of Medicare, their own local coverage determination, the individual from Medicare actually said, well, yeah, I know that's what it says, but that's not what the spirit of it is meant. <laughs> I get those I'm, a lot. Yeah, I get Paul, those am, I mis- am I misstating that? No, no, you're no. exactly right. Uh, apparently, Marley's ghost hangs over every LCD. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, another thing that is really jumping out, particularly when we're talking about urine drug screens, is that state law is going to have some precedent over an LCD with regard to the frequency of testing. I know that the frequency of testing is outlined in LCDs, uh, and there are certain types of facilities that would never do presumptive testing uh, based on the type of population that they're dealing with. Make sure you have all of those ducks in a row when you're responding to a MAC and telling them this is exactly why we did some type of definitive testing, and this is why we asked for these number of drug classes, and this you know this number of drug classes, and you know tell them that this is based on your state statute. Uh, you know we've we keep fighting that battle over and over again, and Medicare and the Max just are not listening, and they do not get it. But you know, Paul, the, I wanted to jump back to the that the um, the TPE that Sean mentioned. So mm-hmm. my experience, I've done a lot of TPE audits. Um, you know, working with the provider that's receiving the TPE, and when we sit down for education, it does. It, there's never the same subject matter expert. You could have a TPE for physical therapy, and they've got an LCSW who's the auditor. Like that doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense to me. They, yeah. That's not their level of expertise. So same yeah. thing with the labs. What's the expertise of the, the the TPE auditor that's doing these lab audits? Are they even right. remotely familiar with it? That's right. such a great right. point. That's such a great point. And one of the things that I go back to is knowing where to find the guidance to help make your salient arguments during an appeal with CMS. So I go back to section 3.1.1.1 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, where it talks about that a reviewer has to be able to demonstrate demonstrate that their scope of work is in accordance with their medical review policy. To your point, Christine, they've got to be able to demonstrate that they're a subject matter expert. And beyond that, they also, each MAC, is responsible under 3.1.1.1 of that same section of the program manual for maintaining a credentials file, which at a minimum has to provide their certifications and the education that they have undergone so that we have an opportunity. Because at the end of the day, it's like the conversation that we've had in the past. If you're going to put a retired dentist onto the phone and we're talking about orthopedic claims or we're talking about neurosurgical claims, I'm sorry, that's not going to cut it. So know the rules, I guess, is my point. So before we move on to the next topic, because today we have some really, I'm excited. We have some great topics to talk about today, and I think it's going to get a lot of folks engaged and I know it's a Monday and usually everybody's dragging butt on Mondays, but I got to tell you, I've been up since I don't even know what time. And I feel like I've had 27 cups of coffee already. So I'm like ready to go. And that never happens on a Monday. But any closing thoughts on laboratory services for our panel, except for Terry, because I know, Terry, you don't like lab services, just like you don't like incident two. (laughs) I have one last thought. Yeah. Go ahead, <laughs> Go ahead, Stephanie. So one thing I had pop up with a client recently is they, they're they in um, a specialty where they're monitoring patients every follow-up visit with labs. And they found out that one of the payers will not reimburse two labs together. So the payer, I don't know if they do it on purpose. I would think that they do. They drop the one that pays more. 
So the billing team was wanting to make that switch and just not bill for the one that pays less. And we had a whole conversation about the fact that just because payers have these policies, you have to be careful. Um, when I found this was with Blue Cross Blue Shield, when I found the policy, they had a whole explanation from their own clinical trials or research that they had done. So we talked about the fact that the providers really need to be looking at that information. If they agree with Blue Cross Blue Shield, then just don't order the test that pays less. Um, if you want to keep paying and in order, or if you want to keep ordering them, then you've got to bill them all. So we can't pick and choose. Excellent points. Excellent points. Paul, any final thoughts on lab services? I think we've talked that uh, subject about as far as we can for today. And I know we have a busy agenda. Let's keep going. Okay. All right. So let's, let's move on to the next of the topics. And I want to talk about the use of templates for procedures and how they don't always support the service or drug codes that are being billed. So who wants to take this one out of the get? Terry, why don't you take this one? You want to take that one? Sure. So one of the things with templates, and I hope I'm on the right track of what we were talking about, is that there's such a push to move to AI, to computer-assisted coding, to computer everything, and just make it a digital landscape. And I appreciate that. I mean, I remember the days when we had fax machines where the, you'd walk in on Monday morning and get this big roll on the, you know, on the ground of all your faxes and you had to cut them. You know, um, I miss my BlackBerry versus now everybody has an iPhone or an Android. So I know technology moves forward. I mean, I remember trying to fit our big brick computers on, you know, on our, on our desks. And now we all have the flat screens and I don't know about you guys, but we all have a couple of them, right? So I understand, you know, moving forward with that. But when we get into templated information and digital, we just run such a risk. And I know Christine and I, and I know you, Sean, actually, I know all of us. Um, and if Scott was here, he'd probably chime in as well. We see so much um, of the same information spit out and it's not individual to the patient. And so templates have to be for your guidance, not for verbatim of what happens on every patient. And I, I think that's where there's a, a misconception. I have a couple of oncologists right now where they write five page novels every time they see a patient for an encounter. And I, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to start going back and looking at the previous ENM services and the previous chemotherapy um, information. And it's all the same. It never changes. It's amazing how a patient on chemotherapy never changed from day one to, you know, uh, treatment number eight. And this is where the, their, their argument to me is, well, it is a lot of the same information and I have to include that so I can read back on it. And, and I want to make sure that all the safety protocols are in there. I'm like, this is where you lose me. Everything now, especially with the, and I was listening to Christine on the weekend. I love what she said, the new guidelines, even though we're still in the, um, the 2021 20, until next year, you have to make it individual to today. <laughs> Christine, there you are. But it can't just be keep, you know, regurgitating everything you see. And I think templates are kind of a crutch. I don't think that they're, 100% helpful, they're guidance, and they're supposed to be something that is an assist to your documentation, not your documentation. And I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, real quick. I, I, and, and this is coming from somebody who is a recovery audit contractor, auditor, okay? And, as, and this is coming straight from, you know, the individual. I love what They Robin don't trust the templates. It's it's assembly line coding and not specific to the patient. And I will deny them. I mean, that's straight from somebody. Mm -hmm. This is why I love doing this Monday roundtable, because we get people from all walks of healthcare. We get people from the Max. We get people from the SIUs, from the racks, from the UPICs, from we've had OIG folks listening in. I mean, you're hearing this, folks, straight from them about the dangers of using templates. So, I got it Terry, for I, too. I see this all yeah, the time. Yeah, Terry, great points. Um, uh, Stephanie, let me go to you. Give me some. Give, give me some of your thoughts on what you're seeing and and how templates are impacting the audit results that you're providing. So, one of the things that um, Terry said really stood out to me when she was talking about AI. So, when we think about the EMR system, there's a lot of um, software or vendors out there that are now trying to take away 
really the human thought process, right? So I have a client, I'm not going to name the vendor or the EMR here, but I have multiple clients that use a particular one that essentially go out and sell their product in a way that their system can code for the provider. But there's a lot of issues with that. And one of the things I will say is that I continually see on my audits of, of clients who use this EMR that there's a lot of undercoding going on. And the reason for that is that AI cannot take the place of the human thought process with medical necessity. So even if we look at the new 2021 E&M guidelines, um, just the presenting problem alone, there can be subjectivity there as to who looks at something as acute complicated or acute uncomplicated. So we can't be making these blanket statements about um, presenting problems or just different scenarios with patients and apply it to everybody. Uh, the other problem that I see with this particular EMR as well is the fact that they do also try to use a lot of templates and a lot of macro statements. So if the provider has, you know, arthritis of the right knee, that particular statement that they use for one patient is used for everybody. So one of the things that I've actually had to do with my clients that use this particular system is meet with their clinical staff, first of all, because a lot of times the staff who are rooming the patient and doing the initial intake are the ones who are driving half of the E&M service with that presenting problem. So there's a lot of different approaches I have to take when I see this particular EMR, but if you are using a system that is sold in a way that the providers can be hands off, or if you're looking at those different type of products, you really need to look further at that and you need somebody reviewing that information or you need to educate your providers and your clinical staff more thoroughly because that's not necessarily going to be accurate just because it's sold that way. Well, it seems like you must have been sitting over my shoulder all weekend, Stephanie, because I had the same problem with a provider that's using the templated EMR. All of the exams are the same. All of the HPIs were the same. Worsening. Onset adulthood. Worsening. Onset adulthood. So I had to pick up the phone and call the provider. Do you mean that none of your patients get better? Ever? Never? Oh, Okay. There's no change to the plan of care. There's no addition of medications. There's no referrals. There's no testing. But every visit, they're worsening, worsening, worsening. Well, um, the the topic of this was uh, procedural templates. And I want to make a point about procedural templates. My first job as a coder was in the anesthesia realm. And, you know, there was always cataract day. It's like, okay, all the uh, cataracts come in uh, on the same day. And there are physicians who, have, who use cataract templates because realistically, the surgery has been, uh, you know, it's been streamlined. A lot of them are fairly the same. But the difference is, based on who is getting that cataract surgery, you have to think of the physical status of the patient because it ranges anywhere from two to four. And that from an anesthesia viewpoint, that is a wide range of different patient statuses that you're dealing with for a surgery that has become commonplace to the point where we're doing 20 or 30 a week. So it's not enough just to put a template in that says, this is what I did. The reason why it has to be specific to that particular patient is that every single patient that comes into an OR or a procedure room somewhere is presenting differently. You know, not all, we're not clones, we're not androids yet, you know? So uh, everybody has a different presentation and that documentation has to show that. I thought, I thought this was a funny comment. I wanted to share this real quick. This is from uh, Betty. And, um, you know, she said, I had a physician that had months worth of notes that all stated the patient fell last Thursday. <laughs> patient sure was unlucky on Thursdays. You know, to, to, I think to her point, and <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny to see that, right? But to her point, it, the providers have to be aware of what they're actually dragging forward from encounter to encounter to make sure that it doesn't appear to be cloned, right? Because when we start running into cloned notes, we start running into the potential that the cloning per the max guidance 
specifically says that it fails to establish the medical necessity of the encounter. So you got to be careful with that stuff. Um, Sean, I, ahead, I had made a, I made a mention last weekend. Um, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I had talked about, you know, this is the compliance show. Why doesn't the compliance committee have someone from nursing, someone from physician, a physician liaison, billing, coding, and once at least once a year or every other quarter review those templates together so that they can make sure that the template makes sense for their practice for their providers for their nursing i mean it's a novel idea i know but i mean truthfully shouldn't that be something on the compliance committee's list at least annually of course and and i think that's such a great point but you know I'll, i'll share with you some comments that were made to me last week by a client and i you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm 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 pretty candid in my feedback when I think a client says something to me that you I are. Just, I was gonna say I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm so reserved. I'm so humble. What? Um, you know, but <laughs> here here's the thing. I know Paul's been on enough calls where I, I've probably said things that most people. A little comic shouldn't. relief this morning. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Have another cup of coffee, Sean. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, I don't know what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. So, what that, see, see, Terry, you got us close to the rail where the wheels were about to come off. Um, he, here's, the, here's the thing, right? It's hard enough to get people to understand at times the importance of having a corporate compliance program okay it's so hard sometimes to encourage that one doctor to five doctor practice sometimes even a 10 doctor practice to spend the money that's necessary to build a culture of compliance in the organization but then you have clients that spend the money and i and i find myself going well why are you spending the money if you're going to fight me every step of the way on this thing. Um, But I had a client last week who said to me, well, you know, and Christine, you were making the point about a physician, a nurse, you know, a coder, this and that. And I brought it up to the client and the client said to me, why would I want to put people onto a, onto a panel who are going to disagree with me or onto a committee who are going to disagree with me and not do what I want them to do? Um, that's classic. <laughs> I mean, but and that was a real comment. That is true. Um, yeah. You know, and I've and heard I, it. I've heard that before too. I mean, I understood. I understood where the client was coming from, but my feedback to the client was, "Well, if you don't trust the people that you're employing, why are you employing them?" I mean, you know, this isn't this isn't McDonald's where anybody could you know drop an apple pie into the hot oil. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the the health and safety of patients, and we're talking about the welfare of your organization. But I want to move to another aspect of the EMRs, if I can, real quick. And I want to talk about the use of smart EMRs. And um, I want to talk about those that are intended to code for a provider and why human, meaning certified coders, auditors are still needed to review documentation to determine the medical necessity if the providers are not changing what the system auto selects for them. And I have some thoughts on this and I'll reserve mine for the very end. Um, Stephanie, why don't you kick us off on this one and then let's, let's do our round robin with the group. Okay. So I mentioned this a little bit in the previous topic there, but um, the overall issue is that we can't fully take the human process away. At some point in the process, whether it's the provider who's aware of the guidelines and applying them, coding staff, which a lot of practices no longer have coders, or, you know, if it's falling to the safety net of the billing team, that's even more of an issue because they aren't in there looking at every single note. So a lot of times what this comes down to is the providers being aware of what it is that they're doing in the EMR system and how that comes out at the end. 
um, with the system that I was alluding to earlier, um, that particular system will show almost like a score sheet. So you can see based on how, how everything was selected, you can see where it was scored for our presenting problem data and then risk to treatment and diagnostic tests. So within that when audits are done it's not enough just to look at the notes of these systems you have to look at those score sheets and the scoring method to see how it's calculating um, one of the things that i found which i think is a a bit of a back and forth as a topic is when a patient's coming in for an injection you know we've talked over and over again about the modifier 25 and the risk that's in, implied in there or documented clearly and this particular system is allowing providers to just use macro statements that ultimately don't say anything and then split bill because it had a separate diagnosis there. So, you know, there's there's a lot of risk there and it, it looks nice. It looks shiny. It looks new um, when practices are purchasing it. I don't know from the user side if they feel that it's easier than others, but there's a lot of risk in those systems when you think that they're hands off because they're not. That's a great point. Terry, I want to get your thoughts, your comments on, well, your thoughts on this comment right here. And uh, why, why is, don't providers want to document their medical decision making specifically to each patient? Isn't that the, just the best practice? Do they always think coders, auditors know exactly what they're thinking each time? Thank you, Annette, for that question. Well, I think the thing that's being missed, and I, I know the doctors don't always take the webinars that we do from the AMA and get caught up on the errata they put out and you know, listen to, you know, do our due diligence and listen to what they're saying. And they just had one, I think, 10 days ago. And I know Christine was in an airport and I'm texting her going, are you listening to this? This was a crazy nightmare of what they were saying on this on this webinar. And what I think is being missed in, in response to that question is the fact that every single thing you see in the learning packages of even the new guidelines, and I'll just pick on E&M for a second, is they want to know the doctor's thought process. And as a coder, we can't jump to that. So I have a couple of particular physicians that like to put in there, you know, patient is uh, worsening. And that's all they say, patient's worsening. Okay, well, can you give me a little more detail? How are they worsening? Otherwise, it's a moderate visit for the most part. And I can't jump, and they're billing level fives. I can't jump to a level five unless you relate that worsening to their condition that you're treating them for, that you're seeing them for. So I need to get the complete picture of what that encounter today is for that patient. But I wanted to t piggyback on something that um, Stephanie was saying on, on the templates. So I, I've been dealing with a lot of different companies that will come to me and say, can we get your endorsement for this template? Because then we want to take it to the association and say, you should use this for whatever reason and then sell their software. So I'll take a look and I'm just like, oh my gosh. So, and it's hard to find one that's perfect. There just isn't a perfect template. But here's an example. And I think this is where, and I think we've all talked about needing the human touch to it and the human coder, the person that understands the specialty. So in every procedural specialty, there are certain codes that sometimes you can use and sometimes you can't based on medical necessity and the circumstance of the patient. And one of my top specialties is cardiology, so I'll put something out there. So if you're doing a heart cath and you close on that patient, you know, instead of basically using manual uh, closure with your thumb or whatever, you're using a, a device maybe an androceal and you do an extremity injection, that's inclusive of that procedure. But let's say that you're doing a heart cath and you had difficulty accessing that groin on that patient, the common femoral arteries are coming in. So you did an injection, you found there was a problem and you want, you had to do a runoff study to figure out what's going on, found that there was some occlusion there. So then you switch to the wrist or the radial access. You can now charge for that because there's medical necessity. The problem is it's the same code. And so you're going to have to, you know, be careful of an edit with the payer, and it's going to have to be documented within the report of why you coded it. So sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. And AI template information where they're trying to get computer assisted coding, they do not pick up on those kinds of nuances. I see it in orthopedics. There's certain times you can get things paid, certain times you can't. And some things are incidental, some things are, you know, medically necessary, you know, so it's, it's interesting where I think the industry is trying to say it's black and white and it's, it's not, it's very gray. Yeah. And that doesn't even uh, speak to the modifier 22 
and the documentation needs right. for something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Christine, go ahead. I know you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> so I've been typing in the chat box here among this and so I have providers that going back to what Stephanie was saying about those diagnosis there and, and not being able to see worsening or, or was it Terry that said it? Um, one of the things that I expect to see when something is worsening is what are you doing about it? So when they're just saying continue on, that kind of is that oxymoron. So I'm getting worse, but you just want me to keep doing the same thing that I was doing that I came in that I was getting worse. Now, of course, there's conditions that there's a progression. There's nothing we can do about it. But I have a doctor who constantly reports as a separate diagnosis, dry skin, apply lotion. And they want credit for that. And okay, we all have dry skin and we all know we can put lotion on it. This goes beyond minimal type of visit, but they want it added to the complexity of the visit. They have multiple conditions that they're managing for this patient. And right here, it says when there's multiple conditions... And I want to stab myself sometimes because you're missing it. You're missing the, the feel of the visit. You're missing the complexity of the visit there. I was laughing because what you were saying about the lotion, it reminds me of the scene with Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> it puts the lotion in the basket. Um, no, I get your point. And I mean, guys, look, we got to add a little bit of levity to this thing. I mean, we're talking about coding and billing and compliance for <laughs> Pete's sake. So I'm trying to. Anyways, um, look, it, I agree with you 100%. Th there's just absolutely no credit for your skin's dry. Put on lotion. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, and to Pam my mom's been telling me that my whole life. Does that mean that she gets to? <laughs> is she some sort of a clinician? She's got the magic. I'm not right. not to, not to be disrespectful. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes I read some of these things in documentation, and I'm like, I agree with you 100. Uh, percent I agree with Pam. One thing I tell my clients all the time, you know, shut off that autocoder. Um, those things are not, and what people don't realize about those. Those are not actually coding for you. If you look at the disclaimer in the contract that you sign with the EMR company, it actually says something to the effect of this is a suggestion based on an algorithm for what you could potentially bill if your documentation supports the level of service. So that's one. Two, coders. Coders cannot abstract what it is that a physician has done, right? Because it's up to the person who's in the room with the patient at the time the services are being rendered to give us a full and complete picture of what transpired during the course of that encounter. I, I don't care that I've been doing this for 28 years. I don't care that Paul's been doing it for 33 years or Terry's been doing it for 30 or Christine, whatever. None of us are in the room. We are not able to infer what a physician is trying to say. I'm not going to guess and, and put myself in harm's way. So let's, let's take this piece and let's transition into auditing. And I want to go into internal versus external auditing. And I think this is going to, I think we'll end the show with this topic, because this is probably going to take up a good piece of what we're going to talk about. So internal versus external auditing. Terry, I want to go to you first on this one. Let's let's talk about internal versus external auditing. Okay, and this is a good segue into that. So an internal audit is one that is performed by members of the organization or practice. Um, I know a lot of the larger systems should have or typically have internal auditing departments. And they're usually responsible for auditing, you know, all of the aspects of the, the healthcare activities, not just the coding and billing that goes on. Um, an external audit is one that's performed by an individual or group or company that's not part of the organization and the practice. And a lot of practices use a combination of both, which I think is, is a good idea. But the difference, the important difference, I think, between internal and external audits for me is that an external audit is more, is more objective. So you mentioned, you know, it doesn't matter how much experience you have, 
one thing I've noticed in an internal audit, first of all, people are trying to keep their jobs. And so they don't want to, you know, upset a physician. And I'm using clean language here because it would have gotten worse there if I said what I wanted to say. So they don't want to upset a physician. They don't want to upset a provider. And like you said at the beginning, Sean, you know, that the, the provider's like, oh, I don't want anybody to dis disagree with me. And so that that's a problem. But the the external auditor also seems to have a little bit more credibility with the results. And it's more likely to be accepted um, by the, the practice. But the other thing is that I've noticed that when I re-audit records that have been audited internally, and this is not to take away from internal auditors, coders, billers that are doing this in your role, a lot of these um, the staff members that are considered, I'm air quoting, auditors, um, they don't have an auditing background. They're thrown into a role because they've been coding for a while or, you know, they've been doing certain things that that have allowed them to step up in the, in the role. And again, that that's okay as long as you understand what it means to audit. But they get used to the physician's notes. They get used to what the doctor meant to say. And, you know, I had one lady say, she, she goes, yeah, she goes, I have a doctor who won't even use the template and he still likes his written notes. And I think he was like 150 years old. And she goes, so I hold up his records to the light just because I know what he's trying to say, you know, and then I figure it out. And I'm just like, oh no. <laughs> so there's, there's things about an internal audit that has its downfalls. Um, I think it's good, you know, good practice to have one, but an external audit, and yes, they can be expensive. This is something that you typically is about. Um, I don't want to say one issue, but it's usually a focused audit that somebody's recommended because they find that there's an issue that they need addressed. And so, um, you know, as in my auditing field, I just noticed that we find a lot of revenue. We find overcoding and undercoding, um, but we also find that there's some compliance issues. And again, we're compliance roundtable with why are you allowing that to continue to happen? Well, that doctor is really hard to deal with. So we just let that go. Oh my goodness. And I'll let it go to Paul on that one. <laughs> Cause I know he's like, Oh, that happens to me too. Yeah. Well, where the rubber meets the road with internal versus external audits is in direct physician education. Uh, because to Terry's point, when somebody is educating internally, uh, they're kind of going up uh, you know, perhaps they're approaching the physician with their hand shaking, saying, I found something here, you know, understanding that that physician is the one writing their paycheck. And they're probably fairly retired uh, from uh, wanting to present bad news to a physician. Whereas when I go in, you know, as an external auditor, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit more give and take because it's somebody that doesn't really have, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't have a, a bone in the, I don't, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. You know, I come in, I look at that documentation uh, in in, a, in an impartial manner, and I say, this is what I found. Now, uh, I always make this point that I've never gone into a physician education session not learning a little something about the organization that I'm working with or learning something that makes me better as an auditor at my job. Uh, it's not a matter of just going in and spouting a lot of different documentation rules and regulations. There has to be a give and take when you have that provider education. And, you know, the, ex the external audit process, as far as the education element, tends to be a little more open and freewheeling. Uh, you know, depending on the type of audience that you have. I've had all types of uh, audiences over the 25 years now that I've been an auditor. Uh, but uh, that's really where the rubber meets the road as far as getting that, uh, getting the best outcome and getting the most compliant outcome going forward. Let me comment yep. on something, Sean, before you transition Please. to somebody else, something that just uh, sparked when Paul was talking. Also, make sure if you're going to hire an external auditor that they understand your specialty that that person, you have to make sure you get references and also make sure that person is not somebody that's going to come in to, how do I put this politically correct? Eh, who cares about politics? That's not going to tell your doctors how to get rich quick. This is not what they're there for. They're there to make sure that you're doing things correctly to help you. And I always say that because I noticed that if I've gone in after somebody who audited that they didn't like, and they're like, yeah, that guy or that gal was not good. 
um, it's usually because there was a trust lost with the previous person. And the, the staff is like, yeah, they kind of trashed us and made us feel like we're going to all lose our jobs. So you want to make sure when you hire externally that you know who you are actually going to. And we don't want anybody to make the staff look bad. Uh, we, we want to be there to not only assist, to help, to educate, and to correct the problem and make sure you're on the right path. So. Yeah. And it's not all about the phrase that pays, you know, uh, how many times have we said that in our careers? You know, when a doctor tells me, what do you want me to say? It's like, you know, I'm not going to give you a phrase that pays, you know, that's not my job. My job is to tell you that, you know, as a physician, you need to have something that's clinically relevant and that is meaningfully assessing the conditions that you are assessing that day and bring that into your documentation. That's such a, that's such a great point. And, and I want to, I'm going to go to Stephanie and Christine on this in just a moment, but I, I want to say one thing real quick. That's such a great point, right? Because I'm not going to, it's not my job to tell you what you're supposed to say. You're the clinician. You need to tell me what you did. And more importantly, why you did it because the why establishes the medical necessity right and i think the theme for today is that it all comes down to medical necessity so the theme of today's show is medical necessity we started with medical necessity on the laboratories here we are talking about it on the templates and now into internal versus external auditing so before i go into my little piece um, about internal versus external. Stephanie or Christine, let me go to you ladies and, and get your thoughts on this. Okay. Well, I so, would just, oh, go ahead, okay. Stephanie. <laughs> so really quick. Um, one of the issues I find with some clients that, that bring us in to do audits is that they just want to hear that they're doing everything right. Um, I've actually had clients, I, before we start, I usually do a kickoff call to just get to know a little bit about them, know if they have any concerns, things like that. And I've had clients that just flat out tell me, well, we want your audits. What information are you giving back to us so we can show an external auditor? And, you know, it's really important, like Paul's been saying, it's not enough to have an audit done. It's what you do with the findings and the information afterwards. And, you know, there's there's times where I will go to an education session afterwards, or even, you know, somewhat recently this year, I had a client where I was meeting not with providers, but with administrative staff, billing staff, and they just didn't like what I was saying. It was going to be a large change. Um, I was quoting the actual guidelines, screen sharing, showing them to them, and they just flat out say, well, we don't believe you. So one thing to keep in mind, e either as an external auditor, yeah, <laughs> I didn't really have a comeback for that. Um, but as if you personally are an external auditor or if you're a practice looking to work with one, you know, you need to be open at that point. You need to hear what's being said. Um, one of the things that I, that I will talk about when I finish an audit is the fact that when payers are coming in, they're not there to be your friends. So as Terry was saying, your internal auditors may really know what was happening or may understand the providers, but external auditors are not looking to do that for you. They're not going to give you a leg up in any way. So it's either there in the note or it's not. And you need to be receptive when you go into external audits to make those improvements. Um, and I don't really mean that in a negative way either. I'm not saying that when I go to meetings, I'm sitting there accusing providers that work wasn't done. Usually it's the opposite. The work's done and I just cannot see it. So just, just be open and receptive. And it's not just a check mark in a box. Go ahead, Christine. Well, that, that Stephanie, that's so true. It, it's, it's difficult. We have to, as auditors, external auditors, we've got to learn how to communicate with the, the, the people that are in front of us. So if it's the provider, how do we communicate with that provider so that they don't feel attacked? Because in essence, this is a result of their work, right? How do we talk to um, administration? So I, I recently stuck my foot in my mouth. I'll share it with you guys. 
I was doing an audit and I had to do the report of findings or we did a, like a phone call of findings with the client. And, um, I had a lot of concerns about consultations. So the, the, the client, the administrative staff says, well, we have a coding department that handles that. So the, the manager of coding said, right, we review the note and we code it. We code it as what we see. And I said, oh, okay. So you're coding a lot of consultations. Well, that's what we see. We see a request. We see a recommendation. And I said, but you know that there's a lot of payers that don't pay for consultations anymore. And they said, well, that's billings department. We just do the coding. And Billing said, well, we just submit the codes that we get from coding. And the CFO said, wait a minute, are we not getting paid? And <laughs> there was such a disconnect there. And in that I'm moment, it was so laugh. awkward, right? Because <laughs> right? now you've got all the players in place there. How do you communicate with all the players? So um, that day was an epic fail. Um, I had to go back and talk to each one individually because... Yeah, that happened. But but again, external audits, we're just bringing the facts to the table and we have to learn how to communicate those facts to make them relevant, to, to encourage the providers to make these changes to be more compliant, to encourage the other compliance committee members to participate when they have that role. That, no, that's great. And Stephanie, I'll, I, I want to come back to you for a second and, and I'll, I'll share this with y'all. And this is why my company a lot of times doesn't let me engage in provider education anymore. So the next time somebody says to you, I don't believe you, you can use the famous words of one of my favorite comedians of all time. And Paul, you're going to love this one is George Carlin. And you know what you can tell somebody the next time they say, I don't believe you. You could simply say, listen, the reason I talk to myself is because I'm the only one whose answers I accept. And, you know, the, and the other that one, note. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the other one that I usually like to explain to people, especially when we're in the middle where somebody has actually gotten caught in a lie. Uh, and, and this is probably one of my favorite quotes. And I have to remind people that there are three types of lies. There are lies. There are damn lies, and then there's statistics, and numbers never lie. All right, so let me go ahead and end that part of the conversation there. Um, let me go to Paul. Paul, any takeaways for our audience before we sign off today? Well, just to piggyback on uh, your last uh, uh, quote, you know, if if somebody tells me often enough that they don't believe me based on uh, over three decades of uh, experience, I quote one of my favorite songwriters, uh, Jimmy Webb, who uh, once said, if you see me getting smaller, I'm leaving. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, you're on, you know, <laughs> you know you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. Terry, any final thoughts? I would just say to everyone out there that's listening and that's watching, that's that's kind of, you know, participating in, in a lot of these roundtables, have your physician sit in one time. Just have them sit in, see what they say. Just say, you know, this is where we're getting our information. These are the subject matter experts we're listening to. And I know we have a lot of SMEs out there as well. We appreciate you, you know, listening in and, and you know, saying, confirming that you're doing things correctly or, you know, that you have questions that you're bringing to us. But have them listen in. And just see what what their response is, because I think that we need to get more physicians involved in the process. Excellent, Stephanie. So overall, you know, I, I feel like each week when we talk about compliance to some practices or some providers, they might just see dollar signs when we keep talking about this, but it's real. It may be dollar signs up front to help you initially, but it's going to save a lot because we can come in, in on the back end like we do in our team often to help providers that are in a mess, but that's costly. So why not be diligent up front, um, get everything in place, get everybody on board and make sure that you're lessening your risk. Excellent. Christine. You're on mute. Okay, sorry about that. Well, one thing that keeps resonating to me is a, a wonderful quote that's now like 22 years old from Larry O'Day in um, Healthcare Modern back in 20, 2000. He did the 10 Iron Rules of Medicare. Do you remember those? Yeah, just because uh, you build for it doesn't mean you're going to get paid. Just because you got paid doesn't mean you get to keep the money. 
I mean, I couldn't be more simpler than than that statement itself. Just because you got paid doesn't mean you can keep the money. And we're here trying to help you so that you can keep the money, so that you don't have to make those massive overpayments, or you don't have to start, you know, being fashion in orange. So like you said, uh, it's a good idea to have your providers come onto the show one day. Just listen. It's an hour. It's recorded, you know. See what we're trying to do for you. Absolutely. All right. That's going to wrap up this episode of the Compliance Guy Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As always, I am so grateful to my friends, my colleagues, Christine Hall, Stephanie Howard, Terry Fletcher, and Paul Spencer for taking time out of their incredibly busy schedules to hang out with me. And to all of you out there on the interwebs, thanks so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us each and every single Monday. We appreciate y'all. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back again next Monday with another brand new episode. So until then, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.